everyone, I am Toby Lawson and this is Ideas on Trap, a podcast about ideas on growth, culture, development and progress. On this episode, I spoke with Afion Williams, founder and CEO of the health food company, Real Fruit. We had a free-ranging conversation on human capital, the business and regulatory environment in Nigeria, poverty, amongst other things. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Um, I think it's nice to have you. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to start with human capital, you know, because there was something you said on Twitter uh, a while back. I think I ran a poll on that idea, you know, that um, some African countries do have a lot more human capital than Nigeria. So can you try to unpack what you mean by that? Because obviously when you look at the data, it can say differently. Mm-hmm. But as an entrepreneur, you experience human capital daily. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you unpack a bit of that? Yeah, so this, this tweet uh, you're referring to really was spawned out of my visit to Zimbabwe, a country that you know was once known for quite a superior uh, educational system and maybe good leadership under the early days of Robert Mugabe, but also has been known in the last 20 years as a place where the economy has been completely topsy-turvy and you know they face one crisis of hyperinflation after the other, etc. But in my visit in Har- to Harare, what I what I noticed was, I mean, and, and I'll use this specific example, was that in the lodge we were staying, where we were about 30 people, there were only three people managing it. Only three people um, managing in terms of cleaning, the lodge manager, maybe four or five, and, and, and the cooks who would come in to make breakfast, etc. But in terms of facilitating the entire lodge, which was like a 10-room lodge with about like 30 guests, I would say. I realized in Nigeria, there is absolutely no way three people could manage the complexities of giving people, you know, stellar sort of warm service um, and, and not just keep the grounds as pristine as it were. And it got me thinking about this learning that I've uncovered in my years of just operating as an entrepreneur, but also reading a lot about development, that a lot of education is in firms, not in schools. And even though Zimbabwe has had a history of good education, like Nigeria, we one could brag has had in the past, um, the idea is that the economy was way more diversified and specialized in things like tourism. So you found that people are much more um, equipped to handle to be more productive than in countries where there's nothing any specialization or the economies are less diversified. So that for me was sort of the link that the diversification of an economy makes human beings more productive, much more than, you know, one, the educational sector, and two, that the inverse is true. The least the less diversified a country is in terms of its learnings, what it can do, what it's good at, the least the less productive um, you know, people are. So if you look at Zimbabwe, a hotel manager there could probably manage the equivalent of a mid-sized hotel in Nigeria or a large hotel in Nigeria, whereas the reverse would not be true. A, a, a manager, a hotel manager in Nigeria is just not equipped 
to do the same in another country and offer the same type of service. And, and Zim is known for its stellar, you know, the, the development of its tourist um, industry and actually is receives tourists from across the world. So the industry has had to become more competitive and be able to serve tourists from across the world, whereas Nigeria has not. So you can see the quality of our hotels, etc., just not being up to par. And, I mean, it's easy to make these comparisons to a country like America, which is a first world nation, all the resources in the world. But if you look at more comparable countries like Kenya or Ghana, uh, when it comes to, when you compare it with sectors like, uh, for instance, I'll use Ghana as an example, uh, food processing, um, because Ghana has learned to build its industry for export and serve diversified companies, you find that a factory manager in Ghana will be better on average than a factory manager in, in Nigeria. And people may dispute this, but I posit that the more complex and the more diversified your economy is, the more people learn and get to know. Um, you look at the banks in Nigeria, and I use India as an example. Um, a bank manager in India, a middle manager, can do mergers and acquisitions. That's because the economy allows for it. The economy is diversified enough where companies are buying each other up, and that skill and that learning is necessary um, for the competitiveness and growth of that bank. In Nigeria, people who've been in banking for 10 years still push paper. And I know that as an entrepreneur who has bank, who has bank uh, relationship managers working for me, and they haven't even they haven't even learned how to do that seamlessly. Every time you want to do some complex, different deal, this reporting to head office, there's all these issues that even a middle manager, someone with 10 years experience in the bank cannot solve at that level. And that speaks to the diversification and complexity of the economy. We're simply not doing mergers and acquisitions at a rate in Nigeria that forces that learning on everybody. So those people are less productive than if you compare them with an Indian banker or let's talk of an American banker or like even a South African banker where you have such a diversified and unsophisticated economy. So for me, human capital is very much driven by the firms in the country and the makeup of firms in the country. Um, and we find that in Nigeria, it stagnates because our companies were, were, not, were not getting new industries really coming in, you know, to improve and increase that learning. And I mean, Nigerians love to talk up how smart and how they do well abroad and how, you know, given the right tools, etc. And that's, that's true. But that's also as a factor of what those countries offer. Not, it's not really inherent to being Nigerian or being here because you find that that logic almost collapses when you're here. Exactly. Exactly. So it's where you are that unearths that potential versus inherently being you. And you see that with human capital deficiencies in Nigeria. And I didn't have that small country smaller GDP perspective till I went to Zim and I was like, wow, uh, these people just by factor of having a more diversified economy, uh, no more, and it, you know, could, could produce more in their, in their industries and businesses. Somebody told me something that, you know, in India, you know, even on the factory floor, what one person does in India, you need three people to do here. Yeah. And I think that's telling that the capacity of one person to solve and make decisions around three processes increase over there just because the economy demands that. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you're making because a lot of the problems we talk about in development uh, centers around productivity mm -hmm. and firms have to be productive yeah. for us to be able to call an economy developing, mm -hmm. so to speak. 
a lot of the effect, the aggregate effects that get measured transmits out of firms. Mm -hmm. So, but you made two points that I want us to speculate on a bit. Okay. One is economic complexity. Mm -hmm. And from, I think, Ricardo Hausman yeah. and Co., they actually say that economic complexity is a better predictor yeah. of development. Yeah. But there's this other school of development that says you have to specialize. Oh, you, you have competitive to, advantage. Yeah, yeah, you have to find your comparative advantage. Yeah, yeah. You have to or oh, do agriculture yeah. or it's manufacturing or whatever. But you are saying from experience that complexity actually works. Mm -hmm. So how how do we get policymakers to uh, absorb that message? How do you craft policy yeah. for complexity? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and I mean, I have to. I feel like I should preface by saying I'm by no means an economist. I just, uh, I just enjoy talking about and thinking about this. This, this I could do for free. I, I, I geek out on, on development, especially and, and productivity and things like that. But the schools of thought are, from what I've read and understand, I think the way I see it, and please. For the audience, this is a very layman way of thinking that, you know, when you when you look at something like economic um, complexity and doing different things and, you know, countries that are successful do things they're not previously good at, it's somewhat walking backwards, somewhat looking at developed economies and saying, well, they're very diverse in the output, but they also started somewhere and built up. So I do think there is comparative advantage is a is almost like a first level um, sort of step for policy makers to begin to say, well, where should we deploy resources and deploy thinking and deploy attention to? It's easier to sort of start with what you have. And maybe the comparison to com um, countries that have really been good at starting what they have, that they've been able to create what they didn't have, is the wrong comparison in terms of policy. Because if you if you look at America or Asia, or one of all these countries that have been uh, that are highly specialized um, and highly diverse, they they all started somewhere. And comparing that to a country like Nigeria, where we haven't yet really kicked off industrialization in anywhere. Maybe too big a jump to say start crafting policy for diversity. And I mean, the, I, will, I will say that the negatives of focusing on comparative advantage is what you see in Nigeria. Ban, protect a small pie. We talk about, um, oh, agriculture is that thing, so let's ban imports because that's what we have comparative advantage in production in. So it is a dangerous hill to die on as it were if you are not able to really multiply your comparative advantage because what you end up doing is saying well this is a small pie let's protect it and all the policies are somewhat skewed to actually whitening the the pie so my thinking is that there is still room for countries like nigeria to focus on their comparative advantage so if i'm looking at like uh, an example is petroleum or oil and gas, you know, there's still billions of dollars in unlocked investment in oil and gas that is, is trapped by bad policy. So it's saying, well, we produce oil and gas, but we can still derive a lot more value from that. Well, for as long as, you know, shale and all these renewables don't sort of stand in the way of do, although I think that despite that, there's still room for investment. Or in agriculture, if you're saying you're the largest grower of cassava in the world, there's still room to be hyper-productive at growing cassava, which will create jobs. With that, we're not even talking about processing, just 
producing cassava that can be used for different resources, producing enough high quality cassava to export, all sorts of things. So there is room for policy attention to go to actually developing your comparative advantage. And I think that then spurs you to start getting into a more complex um, complex policy around the wanting to be like the financial services capital of, of Africa, which is when you don't have, a, you know, you don't have the skills to do that yet, but you can sort of engineer that through policy. That's probably a harder reach for government and people. Um, we're still stuck on what they're doing, but I don't think that it's bad to focus on what you're good at. Uh, but I do think that there is room to un, um, unearth a lot of value in that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so... I worry about timing, mm-hmm. though, because obviously when we talk about comparative advantages and doing mm-hmm. this and that, the go-to example is always Asia, yeah, East Asia, oh, South Korea, Taiwan, yeah. Japan, Vietnam now. But what, what I mean about timing, which to me is a bit of an argument in favor of uh, freer markets. I don't want to say free market. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that attracts a lot of uh, mm-hmm. angry letters. So which I think favors freer markets is, is that the rules of global trade has changed yeah. a lot. I mean, Asia industrialized at a time when there were a lot of permissiveness mm-hmm. in trade. Mm-hmm. And trade regimes around the world today has changed. Yeah. And also, if you want to do comparative advantage now, how bad it is some companies here have built in competences, learning over years. Mm-hmm. You'll be sort of redirecting resources and human capital away from those people to yeah. a few chosen sectors. So I'm wondering, will that really be a way to go? Can we really do comparative advantage? I mean, at the time not past. From my understanding, uh, just for all from my perception, is that the things we are talking about in terms of comparative advantage, the sectors of industries, they're still very largely agrarian sectors. They're sectors that one would assume that there is human capital at the lowest level can absorb some of these, you know, can, will be absorbed versus a large redirection of specialized skills to actually play in those sectors. So if you look at agriculture, for instance, I'll take agriculture because we're largely an agrarian society and that's where 50% of jobs are created. Increasing agricultural input is not necessarily, yes, there is a huge technological in terms of machinery component to it, but a lot of it is fertilizer. And if you look at Asia, a lot of it was um, people who were not doing anything getting on the farms. We have a lot of people not doing anything who can get on the farms and be a little bit more productive. You're not, we're not talking about people who are going to go on to sort of like start agribusinesses and do those kinds of things. But if we focus on that comparative advantage, I think you, you can drive up human capital that would otherwise not be doing anything. And I think that that might be a benefit. I read the book How Asia Works and sort of household farming going into smallholder farming with people farming on their own in their homes outside their lots and then moving them into some sort of smallholder, being a little bit more productive than what they were doing, which put them into jobs and made them employed. And I think that opportunity may still exist. Um, and I think when you start driving up that kind of productivity, you hopefully can attract 
more human capital from outside to, to sort of build up on that. Um, then start the processing for factories, do more complex manufacturing and things like that. Um, I think there's still a window of time, and, and maybe Nigeria's population has a lot to do with it as well, that you know, for domestic consumption, um, there's huge opportunity to make the price of every sort of commodity we're growing cheaper by growing more so that more people consume it and increase consumption. That could be some sort of out um, job creation. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of produce what you consume, but I think in my view, consumption of almost every sort of food product is low compared to even African averages. And that's because the price is high and bringing those, those prices down um, by increasing productivity would help drive local demand of them. And hopefully that will then bring more people into, into employment, make them more productive that way. I hope that, that theory sort of makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm just I'm making a case for uh, increased, you know, focusing on comparative advantage and, and the impact of that on really using using a level of docile, well, docile is not the right word, but a stagnated human capital, which are people who are not employed, can't do much, but if you've got them farming more, they're generally becoming more productive. Um, yeah, that's my thinking around that. All right, let's talk about perception uh -huh. a bit, because you mentioned earlier that, um, I don't know, maybe because of our size, we think, oh, Nigeria is... Yeah. Is awesome. Yeah. We have this huge stock of human capital, and any day now, we're yeah. going to zoom ahead. Yeah, and unleash it and you know, take, take yeah. our rightful place on the African continent. What, yeah. what, what's the biggest perception difference you've observed in the business landscape mm -hmm. in Nigeria? What do you think Nigerian business owners, entrepreneurs, or professionals? I'm mostly wrong about that, that they think they are right about. Mm. Oh, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think it's human nature for everybody to overrate our capacity. That is what we do. We, we're not logical about what we can realistically achieve. Studies, everything proves this. Um, but in Nigeria, what I think a lot of entrepreneurs are wrong about is that idea that that there's something innate in, in the capacity of Nigerians to sort of make a plan or make things happen. I think we, we are very wrong about a lot of times why firms or businesses fail in Nigeria and a lot of it is around lack of structure. I mean, yes, you there are market issues and there are a lot of issues, but I'm, I'm going to focus on this, the need for sort of building systems and processes vis-a-vis -vis firm failure. And I think that a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs think that kind of disorder or not building that order within companies is not necessary to their success because Nigeria is a very disorderly place and things don't happen. But I think a lot of firms stagnate and die um, when there is there are no systems being built in businesses where um, basically capacity, decision-making, etc., is filtered down um, and processes are filtered down from the top to the bottom. So you find in a lot of businesses the CEO knows a lot and owns a lot, but there is not an emphasis on management and middle management being equally skilled or unskilled, being able to make decisions, being able to do stuff. And so there's literally only very few resources 
thinking and growing a business, which is the CEO, usually his, his or her networks and things like that, versus upskilling the management team to be growth-led. So there is this idea that the systems and processes don't matter, but I think they contribute, and I don't have empirical evidence to prove it, but I think they contribute more to the failure of businesses um, than we give credit to, where, yes, market realities are real, but it's a slower way to grow a business. You know, if you start looking at, at the right time, obviously, there's different stages of growth in a business. You don't need a full management team in day one. But when you need that and that system is not put in play, I think you're already regressing as a business and you just don't know it. And then things start to unravel, but you point fingers at the market or the economy or, you know, you point fingers at competition or imports, etc. Whereas there wasn't that sort of universal firm learning that comes from everybody you know, more people sort of being involved in the growth and capacity of the business. And you see the businesses at all sizes where there's a disproportionate amount of the responsibility of the business to grow on one person versus the entire firm. And, and that's also lack of systems and processes that make it everybody's job at a particular level to see the business grow from, the, from their departmental perspective that's missing. And I think it, it leads to the regression of businesses. But entrepreneurs don't, we because it's, it's not a cost per se that comes out of the business and in fact the cost is hiring these people to do it. You don't see, you don't see, it, it's not measured as a real, um, the lack thereof of a strong team and processes in, in the business. It's not measured as importantly as it should in a business. But that's something I think we're all still very wrong about. Yeah. I like where you went with that. So let's talk about management. Yeah. There was this study I read, uh, I'll try and pull up links mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, for yeah. context by, uh, I think, John Van Ringen and Nicholas Bloom. The argument is that management also determines the wealth of nations, that mm-hmm. is how firms are managed. Mm-hmm. It's an underrated factor. Yeah. In fact, there was another study where they found that management is a better predictor of a firm's success than every other factor, even technology, Wow. you know. So, but obviously here, management yeah. is something we don't really yeah. talk about yeah. as such. It's endogenous. Mm-hmm. So what's your experience been like with mm-hmm. uh, other business? How do we improve management? Mm-hmm. And how do we increase awareness in that area? That's a very, very interesting, I think, firstly, study to, to bring up because I tend to agree with that. I mean, yes, people will say, well, if you're in a great industry and have terrible management, you'll still be successful. And I think that might be true, but it's true for very few. It's, it's true when you are maybe the only player, there's two of you, and you know, there's not much competition for market. But when there's a lot more competition for market, like we're seeing in a more globalized world, the quality of the people who are in firms matter and accelerate or decelerate the growth of the company. Now, I'll use myself as a case study. I think that we have, I have a really strong management team. I have managerial heads in all facets of the business, um, all departments of the business. And I think that has helped us grow tremendously from a sales perspective, from being investor ready, from being able to handle numerous things at a go from the ability to launch new products because they're just people who are responsible for getting these things done and understand it and the collective output of that means that things are done better if we want to enter a new territory for instance 
it's not one person doing it. I have somebody from finance looking at the numbers, somebody from admin calling agents to figure out the space, my production team figuring out product integrity, my sales manager finding um, the stores that we're going to go into. And we can execute that in two to three months of people putting their collective output together to get that done. Now, if that management team was not as strong or not as defined, it would be one person trying to be all those things and we would invariably make a poorer decision. And when you make a poor decision, you either fail at that or you're operating suboptimally, which then impacts, for me, the revenue, which then impacts the signal of whether the business has legs or not. So you might find that there is market, but because there is less execution capacity in your firm, you can't actually achieve that market. But what does it look like? It looks like your firm is a non-growing firm and not doing well, primarily because you alone can't do everything and the people around the table are not equipped to actually access the market available. And then as you learn within the firm to do these things, you can replicate them much easier. So I kind of find that, tied to my previous point, that decentralization of output and expectation of output and productivity obviously helps the firm um, grow faster, you know, make better decisions, and those businesses are more likely to demonstrate investment readiness, demonstrate that they can scale, demonstrate better unit economics, etc. because it's just a, a talent or pool of people who are equipped in each of their departments to make and um, optimize the decision-making, make the best decisions, etc. That's interesting. You talk about processes, but I kind of want to push on the personnel Mm-hmm. aspect of it. Obviously you have a great management team, but what do you have to get right to mm-hmm. build a great management team? Because well when you talk to people what they say is that oh managerial talent is actually scarce yeah. and that mm-hmm. um, it, it's our culture to yeah. be sloppy management wise and we're gonna talk about culture yeah, in a bit, yeah. but what do you have to get right mm. to build a great management team? That's a fantastic question because I also struggle with that. I say, do I, do I have a good management team because I have sought them out or, you know, and can that be devoid of a growing company? So can you, I, this is for me one of the big things that I also find that a lot of Nigerian companies are not growing and they're sort of stagnant. So you sort of peaked in terms of learning. So sometimes the need the ability for even the firm to attract people and, and keep them and sustain them and even pay them is limited when the company is not growing. So if you're not growing as a company, can you attract people to grow the company with you, which is how they learn and get better at doing more? So if you're a company that is not doing a lot of things and doing more things, you people's learning pretty much stagnates, right? It's like a government agency. So I would say one of the inputs is a growing company. So in a growing company, people are learning more. People are learning things they've not done before. So there's a lot of external learning coming in. There's a lot of self-learning, um, which then becomes process because we've learned what to do. We didn't know what to do before. Um, we've learned it and now we've agreed that that's the right thing to do. We sort of in, in, install it as a process and people repeat it. So for me, a growing company is necessary to keep attracting really good pool of management, but also the pool of people who are curious and who are excited by growing a company is also so it's not like a chicken and egg thing, you know. People who are curious about doing things they've not done before because that's what a growing firm is. You're learning to do stuff you've never done before. That's how you grow. And then being able to apply that curiosity in a company that is growing so that they're learning to do things they've not done before. 
my idea of how you get a good managerial team and how you bring in the talent that, you know, it's not just for today but for tomorrow where you're not doing, you know, when we started, for instance, we were selling two products, two variant of products in Lagos. We're now selling six, actually, our FKU is about 16 right now in Lagos and 12 other states and wow. in over 300 stores. So the learning to be able to scale up and do that uh, comes from the fact that we're growing, but also comes from the fact that there are people who can actually achieve that successfully. And those people started off not working in 12 states, but have now grown to the capacity to be able to do that. So it's a chicken and egg thing, but I, yeah. I, I don't know where, <laughs> been, where, where I've been in. Can you grow without people who are not curious about growth and you know cannot execute things they didn't know? Uh, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned growth. Yeah. Uh, because we're, we're zooming out a bit. Now, people would say, well, it's tough to build a growing business yes. in Nigeria. It's almost a cliche. Yeah. That. So, what I want to know is okay, we hear that X or Y isn't helping. As a business owner, what does it take to build a growing company? Does government have to get out of the way mm -hmm. or help in a certain way? What are the things that has to go right mm -hmm. to have a growing company that then attracts uh, quality managerial talent? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a very loaded answer. So obviously, I'm not going to focus on the sort of more banal part of yes, government policy and you know initiatives. I think businesses are very limited in how much they can grow outside of government policy. But let's sort of control for that. Um, I think we underrate the the need for capital. I think that people don't know, and even I myself, the extent of how much having money to survive and stay in business is what ultimately leads to growth of companies. You know, people will tell you, and I find a lot of the advice to entrepreneurs quite asinine and, and platitude and all that's a word. Like, money oh, doesn't matter. You know, you don't need money at every level. Oh, yeah, I do. I always need money. Uh, because money is one resource that can unlock others. But I say that not facetiously um, in the sense that, you know, money does not solve all problems. But when you start a business, in my opinion, you, you, you are assuming a product market fit. You're making a lot of assumptions around your customer wants, around your product's ability to solve that customer's problem or service. And you may not get it right in the first time. It doesn't mean that you cannot solve that customer problem repeatedly where you can then generate the value that we see in growing companies. But those pivots, those mini pivots that happen in companies, they're not free. Innovation is not free. Changing a business model is not cheap. And that's where capital comes in. Capital helps you overcome some of those mistakes you make or right those, those wrong assumptions you make that ultimately lead to growth. When I started my business, I'll use myself again as an example. And I'm very, very amusing anecdotes. But this is not a, you know, it's, it's an opinion it's conversation. Right. It's, not, it's not one that requires all that fact. But, um, the first two products we launched are not our best-selling products today. Our best-selling product is a product that we got out of putting two products in the market, the customer rejecting one and telling us what they wanted. Now, launching that next product requires significant investment for me to get new packaging, get new suppliers, get new staff, get all these things. And had I not had the capital to do that, you would have said, well, there's no market for drive-through because these two products, out of them, one was rejected. 
But really, what Capital Hub we do is bridge the gap to learn more about what the customer wanted and be able to provide for them. And then scale that and then launch new products. So money is important, capital is important. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that could, you know, people always say, oh, don't give an entrepreneur too much capital in the beginning. I'm sorry, very few entrepreneurs get too much capital in the beginning. And I think even if you give an entrepreneur a lot more capital than they're able to absorb in the beginning, you're increasing the chances of them actually figuring out where the value is, where the customer's need really is, so that they can solve that problem. And that's how firms grow. So for me, we talk a lot about training and we talk a lot about product market fit and understanding your current customer. That's not free. That's not cheap. It takes money to survive to do. You have to be in existence. You have to have enough working capital. You have to serve them different iterations of this product. And in my view, capital is as simple and basic as it is, is one of the big things that would help you know firms grow. Yeah. 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 It's a very great point. It's sad some of our capital control measures. Yes. Yeah, in terms of policy. Yeah. Because I mean again talking about Asia, take a country like China when China started industrializing, a lot of the capital came from Chinese yes. overseas yes. Yeah. in Taiwan, in yeah. Korea, in Japan. But here, you find that even government is fighting against remittances yeah. And, yeah. and stuff like that, and we don't have enough capital. No, we don't. We absolutely do not. Um, and a lot of the capital that's coming in is quite conditioned, and I think sometimes also it, it, it's complex. We, we simply do not have enough capital that, that is needed to spur any sort of growth in enterprise, and, and even a modest rate, I would say. Yeah. What other things do, do you need to build a growing? I read a blog of yours yeah. once where you measure networking, yes. what, what role does that, does that play? I think it plays a huge role, especially in a country like Nigeria, where access to opportunity is not democratized anywhere, but it's certainly more equal here than in other parts of the world. So in a country where a lot of the resources and opportunities are in the hands of a few, to sort of gain access to that, where you're not from that class or cater, I think networking is absolutely vital. And I think the power of networking is proven globally. It's not just about Nigeria. Take any example. You can't just walk into anywhere and say you have a product service or whatever and you want to sell it where, where you don't need some network, some sort of reputational um, stamp of approval or something like that to get you through those doors. So networking simply is trying to do that. I would say leapfrog some of the challenges you face in, in running a business where the decision rests in the hands of a few people. So for me, expanding your network and going outside of your your traditional network of family and friends and knowing people who know people and knowing people who are not in your circle, um, I think increases your chances of success as a company to raise funding, raise awareness, raise purchases, etc. And again, sort of very difficult to measure in terms of firm success, but I think one of those underrated things that um, really, really help businesses and people in general, the world over, um, advance. So networking in this case functions as a bit of a social capital. Yeah, yeah, it's leveraging your social capital to to sort of grow your business directly through getting financing, through getting buyers. Yeah, so it's sort of a resource, a standalone resource that adds to the growth of your business. That's how I look at it. 
but how, how does this square with merit? Uh, what you hear is that there has to be a level playing field yeah. for businesses to compete fairly, you know. But if successful businesses are better networked, how, yeah. how do, isn't that problematic for, yeah. let me say, our idea of yeah. uh, uh, merit? Yeah, I think that idea is unfounded. I think that the idea of equality is a nice virtue that people think is um, is what leads to the success of of societies. And I, I don't think that that's true, and I don't think it's played out in history. And I, I think there's a lot of circumstance that leads people down the path that they get onto. And if you trace back people's history, especially successful people, I mean, I know you have this very interesting comment, which I leverage a lot on, you know, privilege analysis. And what people do is when you see people doing successful things, you go backwards and say they're privileged. And I think that's true, that you find that success is certainly not equally distributed. And I think you find successful people are more likely to be successful. Um, You find that people who are better networked and experienced tend to build better businesses. It's... It's an amalgamation of people's histories and where they're coming from. It's not that you just said everybody run, you know, you open the playing field and people are, uh, everybody has an equal footing in terms of what they can do. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that, especially for entrepreneurial success, you know, you don't need so many entrepreneurs to be successful to build a successful economy. Uh, you look at America as the most successful economy in the world with 300 million people who are all most working in private institutions, a small percentage are successful. So for me, equality in terms of entrepreneurial success is not something you can you can sort of control for. And I don't think it's fair to punish people who have the means to build bigger businesses that would absorb more people, create more income and productivity for the country um, to try taper that or to try temper that rather because you want to build that equal playing field. It's almost like dragging people down to the mean. And I don't think that creates the kind of success that that benefits society as a whole. So I say everybody work with the privilege you have because that also is not something you can easily trade. People don't give up their privilege or people cannot, you cannot automatically say because I have this kind of access um, you know, I'm going to give it away and expunge it. I will, sorry, I will exchange it for somebody else to have. It's very, it's a very difficult thing to do, and you cannot erase centuries of history that have led people to where they are today um, to try control for equality. I don't think it makes much sense. I think that if people are allowed to thrive individually as as humans are made to do, um, using all the resources at their arsenal, society wins more than it loses. It's not a perfect system, but I think it's the best. Yeah, interesting point on, on privilege. I, my favorite example of that point is Bill Gates. Yes. You hear today how his middle school was selected yeah. in his district yeah. for a, a pilot computer yeah. program and how that is some kind of privilege. And what you don't hear is... He was not the only kid yeah, in that school. And people just sort of discount yeah. the hours he had to yeah. work or the nights of misery, of uncertainty, yeah. and hard work that people put into, into mm-hmm. this. Another thing I discovered, and I would like to know your insight on that, is on this privilege issue. People think that group 
traits yeah. transmits individually. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, if if you're born into a certain income yeah. class, yeah. Yeah. you know, X percent of the income distribution, it means you enjoy privileges that come with uh, with that, yeah. regardless of yeah. whatever you do. And often I find that that's not true. There are lots of rich, dumb kids mm -hmm. who are failures, yeah. absolute failures, yeah. Yeah. you know, who I wouldn't want to be, yeah, in a certain, exactly. regardless of their privilege. So in our social discourse, mm -hmm. we are importing a lot of that. And maybe my experience is limited to social media. So I want us to, to lean into that here. Yeah. So, so I think there is certainly, an, uh, I would say at this point, almost an attack of individual virtue and individual, you know, individualism in a way where uh, it seems, you know, like you say, people discount the individual components that make people successful um, and they want to tag it as a privilege of wealth or a privilege of going to Ivy League schools or one privilege or another, which is a very simplistic way to look at it. And you find that everybody's route to success has a mixture of lottery of birth, economy you're born in, the time in which government policy favored you or your parents or not. There is a huge, very complex uh, mix of things that make people, you know, that lead and support people's success. But there's also that, like you mentioned, thousands of other people who grew up in those similar conditions and the individual trait of wanting to of striving or building or doing something is one that is discounted and i think being i think that there's a general attack on individualism free free thought and individual thought um almost making people feel that even in societies where there's a lot of success people want to demerit their own individual input to their success and sort of collectivize it as a way of diminishing that because you don't see in those societies where everybody else had access they're, they're also failures so it's not just that the society was the reason you did well it's that there's something about you as the individual who has been able to build whatever success that you have so this social discourse around collectivism and collectivizing you know people's successes and things like that it's a worrying kind of phenomenon happening because i think it's it's almost going against who people are as individuals i think it's going against the way human beings are made and are built and i think it's worrisome to start punishing and tagging people who are individually successful as being sort of greedy barons, as it were, for being successful or, you know, feeling bad for being successful, feeling bad for building a lot of wealth uh, because somehow they're meant to collectivize their wealth or they somehow they also stepped on other people to be able to get wealthy. Um, so there's this sort of very dangerous and insidious ideas around individual productivity and individuals building that, that I think are being disproportionately uh, are being spread in a way where they're being accepted much more than I think they should be, you know, I'm not being critiqued, you know, um, I certainly don't um, subscribe to anybody, um, I certainly don't subscribe to privilege identification of any kind, I think it's very, it's actually a very, uh, it's an insidious thing to do to point at people and say, declare your privilege, declare your privilege, it's tagging people in a in a negative way that I don't subscribe to, I think does not do anything for anyone really. Um, so 
um, I say, as individuals, we'll always look for all the resources at our disposal to get to whatever level of self-actualization we're trying to get to. And, and that should not be diminished in any way. I don't care if you're a billionaire or you're like, you have a hundred air in your pocket. That is human. That's what we do. And it shouldn't be discouraged. So now, how much do you think categorical disadvantages like gender or social class matter if we are talking about individuals, yeah. like you said, yeah. but what, what you find is that individuals still fit, yeah. however defined, mm-hmm. however poorly defined sometimes, into certain categories. Yeah. So, and um, like, of course you're a woman in business. Mm-hmm. You hear things like X is difficult for yeah. a woman in business, whereas for a man, they don't face the same barriers or challenges. So maybe things around sexual solicitation and uh, yeah. so how how much do you think that matters in terms of uh, striving and success? Yeah. So so like you said, you know, equality in general doesn't exist and I think that that's the general premise that even if you if you control for gender and look at men there's huge inequalities and men uh, in, in one gender where you, you sort of like look at different strata for instance so for me this idea of gender equality is especially well let me let me have to be very careful here because I'm not dismissing at all that they're categorical disadvantages for and um, for women in business and you know women as a whole. But again, what do we compare it to? We often compare it to, to men, but we don't compare it to say categorical um, differences that men face as a gender that, that are differences between men. Um, so the men versus women view is the most obvious way to look at the disadvantages for women. But I generally think that we need to look at that from the perspective of the history of women and you know how when when did women start moving out of the home as a primary occupation into business and does that explain why there are differences in the number of women representative in industry versus not? Because if you take a different look at it, I think you'll find huge successes. I think you'll find that in a generation of women or someone like my grandmother not being educated in only 200 years her granddaughter can become a CEO of a business but if you look at it from the perspective of well let's try equal the playing field where we have 50 50 men and women that's not really solving the problem in my opinion the problem is more wanting to encourage more women to like that that women are moving into formal careers and rising to the top versus saying that the dirt of women in top management is because of some um, patriarchy or some system that's blocking women. Is that just from the get-go, men got into those roles more and more women are getting into those roles. So it depends on how you look at it. You might see that what we're actually seeing is an advancement of women versus women being you know, the word today that they're still being disadvantaged. And that's true, but it's not, um, you know, I think trying to uncover the root cause, which is very complex and not based on one thing, and certainly not based on the fact that, okay, men are advancing at the expense of women is 100% true. 
And that is the simplistic discourse that you're hearing that, okay, men are patriarchal, so they're the ones, you know, it's an all boys club, etc. Well, then, how do you explain for women being more university graduates than men in developed economies? Women are getting more degrees, women are advancing more women in management. So it's, it's a way to look at it, I think, to solve the problem matters. And I don't know that. I think it's more sensational is to look at it one way versus another. Now, bringing it back to myself as a woman in business, I can't categorically say, and I'm not going to speak for every woman because that's silly to do, and my experience is very unique, but I can't categorically say that my gender has hindered my progress as an entrepreneur. So I've never gotten a, no, you are a woman, so therefore you cannot progress. I don't know that there are many women starting businesses who have heard that. Now, are there other um, challenges women face? Maybe the impact of motherhood, the impact of, you know, social conditioning to make women maybe not, not, uh, social conditioning is even a stretch for me to actually apply to this scenario. But whatever experiences women face as a collective, or, you know, their collective experiences growing up, which is actually very individualistic. It's not all collective. Um, those things matter, but they matter for men too. Men's success is not equal. It's, you know, two men that grew up in the same household don't automatically become successful because they grew up in the same household. Um, to, to women who grow up being, you know, two women who grew up in the same household don't automatically just ascend to the same levels because they grew up in the same household. So there is, there's something that we're trying to, I think, aggregate, which should be disaggregated to actually find ways to advance women. Now, again, back to me, no one has ever said you're a woman, so you you must, um, you will not succeed because you're a woman and I don't do business with women. That's never happened to me. I don't know how many women that's happened to. And when I look at the impact of challenges that affected me as a woman, say, sexual misconduct, yes, I've had people say inappropriate things to me as a woman, and I take that as as, as a challenge that is it different from you know another challenge that a man faces where that is a hindrance to his success in business so we have to weigh those up there there are those challenges that affect women and but do they disproportionately affect them to the challenges affecting male success i don't know that that's the case i can't say i can't say what, that what about implicit bias like um, maybe there might not be explicit stuff, mm -hmm. you know, like nobody's going to tell you because you're a woman. Yeah. But something that there are implicit biases against women mm -hmm. that, oh, like because you're a woman, I can implicitly conclude that yeah. I'm not going to offer you that promotion because I imagine that five years from now you're going to get married yeah. and have a child and... What about implicit bias? Do you think that plays a huge role and um, can it really be corrected? Is it a problem we can solve really? So I think if you look at, um, I mean, I've read some studies around this and I'm not going to say that my reading is up to date on it, but if you look at even studies around senior management and why women are dropping out of management, a lot of it has to do with motherhood and, you know, becoming mothers, suspending their career advancement. But a lot of it is, I mean, if a woman who has an MBA and is a mother, was working in her career, becomes a mother and decides to quit and become a mother full time, it's a choice. And it's it's her choice because she, she wants to maybe, you know, be, 
Well, there are various reasons people make those kinds of choices. But I guess the point I'm trying to drive at, uh, let me try to be a little bit more eloquent, is that the dirt of female management is that women at the stage of becoming mothers don't go back into work or take part-time jobs, etc. So, so for me, if you look at that, you're saying, are women being punished for being mothers or are women choosing that they enjoy motherhood so they want to do that? And is that something where this would, well, firstly, that the narrative is that, no, women cannot go back to work because they're mothers, because that's not true, or that what should be an ideal you know, solution to allow women who have children and are not overburdened by childcare to make that choice. And the women who choose to actually stay home and not want to go back to work um, are doing so because it is their own desirous outcome. And for me, that's something to unpack. And I think we're seeing more flexibility around women being able to reintegrate in the workplace um, versus their careers ending because of having children. Um, I, I'm not, again, I can't say how much that bias of, you know, let me not give a woman a chance today because in five years she'll be a mother is, maybe it's a, it's a bias that maybe is probably more widely held in a different age or category of person. Um, it's hard to test. Does it exist probably? Does it exist to the extent that people think it does? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think you're finding a lot of self-selection out of, you know, I think that's more the norm. Women are self-selecting out of going up because of motherhood and the demands of motherhood. Um, and if that is to change, we should unpack that as the issue, not necessarily say that, you know, it's because men are stopping women from going up in their careers, if that makes sense. I mean, like, where would you pinpoint the solution? Where would you pinpoint where to investigate um, um, how to solve the problem? I think it's looking at that, you know, that, that time where you become a mother and your career takes second place. And again, we assume that there is no payoff for people who are deciding to choose that path. I mean, the narrative is yeah. that it is completely, uh, oh, a do or die out yeah, there. You, you have to do it. Yeah. In, work. in work, exactly. And because every woman is made to be this career sort of, uh, every woman who's working a career is meant to get up to the total ranks and become the boss. Therefore, having a child is not, and choosing motherhood as a work, quote unquote, is not um, success. For some people, it is, absolutely. And some people, the payoff and the trade-off of becoming a mother is absolutely the form of success. I've recently become a mother, and while I'm an absolute workaholic, I can appreciate why women would want to focus on motherhood. And it's not a failure that they want to do that. And it's not at the expense, it's not patriarchy or misogyny or a man stopping them from doing that. It's a choice, a valid choice for women to do. So where women don't want to take make that choice and want to advance is where I say, let's let's find solutions for, but not automatically paint it as a huge ill in the world that women choose motherhood. A lot of women love being mothers. If they didn't, we would not we would not exist as a race, right? Like if women didn't actually enjoy the journey of motherhood. So I think that that's um, that's more nuanced than people like to understand. Yeah, this, is a, this is an interesting area. So I'm just yeah, going to ask you straight up, are you a feminist? Oh, am I a feminist? Um, uh, yes, I am. I would say that do I believe in the equality of sexes, which is the tra- traditional you know, definition of feminism? I say 
I am. I do believe in that. Do I believe? What I do believe is that equality is that anything a man can do, a woman can do. There's not equality amongst the female gender. There's not equality amongst the male gender in terms of the playing field or in terms of people's access, networks, everything. So this, this, um, the view of feminism that anything a man can do, a woman, you know, that that defines equality as as like, oh, I must pick myself up against what a man does, has, says, etc. Is equality is not a fake to me. It's not real. And I can't really stand by that. Now, where I think, um, what, what I believe should be equal is access. So whatever a woman wants to do, her gender should not prevent her from doing that as a man. Uh, but I don't believe that the male standard is what, you know, sort of quote-unquote success looks like. So if women are not equal, if they're not exactly on the level as men, um, Men are not on the level as men. Women are not on the same level. So I don't, I, that, that sort of generic ideology of equality falls flat for me when you think about it logically. And um, it's, it's not a measure that you can even attain because you cannot control everybody's individual um, experiences. Uh, what you can try and democratize is access. So to education, I don't believe no woman should not have access to education. And neither should any man, you know, access to working, access to things, um, access to people making their lives better. I believe um, that for me, quality of access is what I would say I understand feminism to be, and I will consider myself a feminist. Now, new age feminism, <laughs> no, I mean, if that is what the decisions I would, I would 100% say, no, I'm not. I don't even call it feminism. I think it's more... Uh, let's not even go into what I think it is because I have strong views about that. <laughs> intro, but yeah, um, um, access is for uh, me the best chance. I don't I, even that is hard to that's hard to, yeah. to assimilate. It's yeah. really hard when you think about it. Um, yeah, you, you can't control for all the things that makes a person's experience in this world. Yeah, um, you, you, yeah. you see a lot of. Um, of course, discourse around uh, gender issues these days, and I've been trying to really tease out what it is that we as a society are going for, actually. Um, yeah. But you see a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much that helps. Yeah. But, um, certainly, there's a lot to be angry about, yes, yeah. but I don't know how much anger helps in that. Yeah, but one idea I want to put forward, and I'd like to hear your views here, is gender issues and economic development yeah, in general. Yeah, yeah. Like when I see people um, protesting or mm-hmm. campaigning to end rape, yeah. For example, yeah. Of course, rape is a huge, huge problem mm-hmm. that no society should uh, tolerate. But I also wonder, on the other side, about state capacity, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how does a police force yeah. that cannot stop petty crime yeah. investigate yeah. rape, yeah. how can uh, yeah. a police force that cannot prevent murders yeah. investigate properly investigate and prosecute rape? People talk about passing laws where we have laws that are not enforced and um, where you can easily weave your way out of... uh, uh, So shouldn't a lot of this activism be focused on development generally? Because 
I think a yeah. lot of a lot of social progress is positively correlated yeah, with, yeah. with income growth. Yeah. You'll be surprised. Exactly. You know? and, and and that is a hill I'll die on because I talked today about a lot of lending a voice to causes and social media making it easy for people to join causes and say they support things uh, on a very, very sort of superficial um, level where it's like, well, I support, it's easy to say, I support no sexual abuse to women. And I completely agree, anybody who, who, who which only a deviant would support sexual, you know, sexual abuse or rape of women or any other cause of kids, out of school kids. But the reality is that a lot of these things are byproducts of poor societies. You find these ills are more common in societies that are not economically advanced, that are getting poorer. And like you said, for me, economic, in, a, in the history and development of a country, you solve problems. I, I mean, the way you solve problems is not, you know, let me, let me take this back to the size of government. The size of government for Nigeria relative to its GDP and the complexity of its economy is completely inflated. You have over-regulation where you should have less government and less industries thrive. Even, I mean, look at China. Like you said, a lot of things were allowed that would not be allowed today in China. But those things that were allowed, allowed economic progress and allowed for the wealth for the wealth of that nation to be possible, right? And it's the same thing when you take it to any social cause. It's a lot of it is rooted, you call it culture, you call it tribalism, but it's really a competition for resources. Um, who wants to say that children should stay out of school? But when you don't have a country that's rich enough to build schools, good schools for people, are they better off in schools where they're not learning anything? You know, it's easy to say, well, everybody should be in school. Yes, it is, but when you're turning out kids that cannot do anything or cannot learn anything, or when you have a society where people are too poor to send their kids to school, it doesn't matter what you legalize around the need for education. People simply can't afford it. So I think with all these causes, there is a very crucial stage of economic development that actually solves a lot of the problems. And it's not more laws. You know, right now you say, well, they're signing a law against this sort of victory. It's not a victory if... You go to the police station, or and, and somebody who perpetrates the law can simply pay off his way, or yeah. somebody who doesn't have access to a lawyer cannot get justice, or the fact that the police do not even have the capacity, or Jesus Christ, the petrol to even drive to come and see what you're yeah. about. So, yeah. Or even basic investigation. Yes, exactly. So for me, Yes, a lot of focus should, should really be around how we get Nigeria richer. A lot of gender issues are a byproduct of poverty. They're a byproduct of, it's not even a byproduct of patriarchy or people's cultures. It's that if women got richer, you know, there's a stat that says if women had, like, go to school to, uh, we talk about Nigeria's population or overpopulation, for instance, if women go to school up till high school, they have, like, two or three fewer kids. If women get better education, they're likelier to choose who they marry and get in better domestic situations. Um, all these things that are underpinned on just income education, those two simple things that are as basic as, you know, having more money in your pocket to make to give you the agency to make more decisions and being literate that improve the outcomes of women and sort of protect them from all these social issues, for instance, that they're exposed to. But we make a lot of fuss around the symptoms and not the underlying issues. You you talk about rape being a huge problem. It is a problem. But what would happen, what would stem that problem is, I think, often invariably linked to increased wealth. Um, yeah. If you punish more people who rape, 
probably less people would rape you know but to punish more people who rape you need you need a whole host of things to happen you need to be able to catch rapists for one <laughs> so i do agree that a lot more focus should be on on those basic foundations if i i mean i live i believe i live that through my values in terms of being an entrepreneur my thesis is that if you give people especially women i'll shamelessly plug that my company is over 65 percent female employees and my, my management is 100 percent women and my thesis is if you if you give women opportunities to earn their own money they they have more agency over their life and i'm not going to sit here and say i support a million causes i support that cause i believe in that i believe that the women get better educated and work for themselves and earn their own money their outcomes in life are better and that's my thesis and i'm going to stick to that for as long as i can i may be criticized for not saying oh i don't support this kind of mission or social i believe human beings are limited in what they can support and i'm somebody who believes in death over breath anyways so I want my life's work to unearth that and, and, and multiply that as much as possible. I'm not going to say I can be all things to all people. I don't think people can. Um, and I think if you focus on core issues, your outcomes are better. So that's my that's my view, that's my hypothesis, and I'm sort of walking that talk mm. um, as an entrepreneur in business um, and, and person, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, um, another point I want to mention is, of course, we see a lot of funding into social impact programs for mm. women. Uh, I was reading a post lately, again, I'm going to put up links for listeners. Um, it was a field study on fertility, which is a huge problem in Africa. I mean, Nigeria is about five children per woman, which we don't have enough income yeah. to cover that much. <laughs> so what they found from the experiment was that fertility interventions and educations were more effective within groups where the men were targeted as opposed to the yeah. women. Yeah. What that tells me is that fertility decisions are not made individually. Mm-hmm. Couples yeah. make, make that decision. But what you see is that a lot of the social intervention programs target women yeah. specifically. Yeah. They don't target families yeah. Or, yeah. or couples. And that's usually celebrated. Do you, do yeah. you think that's a problem? Or how can we resolve that? Yeah, problem? I mean, I think that I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I know too much about that. I mean, I remember reading one study, or was it a summary of these uh, the interventions of women in the North who are getting injections and how they have to lie about where they're going because, you know, they can't take pills because if the husband sees them taking a pill, then it's a problem and they have to make an excuse to go get injections. Now, when they can't do that, then the, comp- the intervention completely fails because they will get pregnant if they don't take these injections very regularly. And so what's the better solution if you want family planning to be truly adopted and not done in secret, and this is obviously among the most vulnerable, where women have no rights, you know, in this, in this uh, domestic situation. I would say it makes sense to get men on board and to get them to see the value in, in family planning, um, because there are women barely have rights, so, and women disproportionately suffer from having the burden of having too many children, not just health-wise income. In most, you know, outcomes, a woman who has more children is worse off than a woman who has less, you know, where resources are scarce kind of thing, is my, is my view. And so, to target the man means to help ease the burden of women. Um, but maybe it feels like more resources are going towards men than women. For me, the beneficiary is a woman, I don't care how you achieve it. If you really care about women's progress, 
however you achieve it, if that is the outcome and the aim, I think that should be what counts. Not necessarily that they must be the direct, you know, beneficiary or the intervention must directly benefit them because sometimes it's it's counterintuitive, but they are more likely to be benefited if you if you take a maybe an intervention that targets a man and this might be the case in this situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about poverty. Okay. Yeah. Um one of your should I say mentors or people you admire start doing? Yes. Recently won, yeah. recently won the Nobel Prize, and there's been a lot of coverage around that area. Um, earlier, we talked about employment and, yeah. and things like that. But what do you think is the best way to address the poverty issue? I know, I know you do a lot of. A lot of work in that area. Yes, I think the best way is not to assume that there is a best way. And I think if I leverage the work of Esther Duflo, it was, I think, the biggest takeaway from her book, Poor Economics, which was my 2017 book of the year. I mean, it opened my mind to how hard poverty is to solve. The idea that even economic growth, capitalism has solved poverty more than any other system. It still has its shortcomings in terms of its ability to actually reach the world of poverty. So poverty will always exist, and that's the first thing. But for me, all the interventions and the mini studies show that it's very difficult to isolate a driver of poverty and think that when you eradicate that driver or when you add an intervention, you're going to see outcomes that you can replicate. And I mean, the biggest for me was microfinance. So everybody tells microfinance as... It helped the poor come out of it. No, the studies have shown that what it does, it just gives people more trading capital. It doesn't make people richer. They just have more money uh, to trade and like... And more, and more debts. And, and yes, and if anything, yeah. it's it really burdened people with a lot of debt. So when you look at microfinance and saying, I mean, you're, and you're insuring the poorest people, you're giving finance to the poorest, most risky customers at the most exorbitant interest rates. Um, that hasn't changed their lives. It's given them more cash. It doesn't necessarily mean that they've amassed or built more wealth. That just, to me, shows how hard it is to solve poverty. And so if I'm to, yes, if we say, well, we have scarce resources, going to head, what would I pick? I would pick economic growth. I, I would <laughs> say, do that. And it's sort of, it's worked in the past quite well. Who knows how well it works now? But um, it's really hard to say doing X solves poverty. It's really, really difficult. And I would encourage everybody to read for economics. But there's so many insights from that book that show that one thing alone or, or, or trying to do one thing. You know, people, and, and I think I want to make this point about when people say, you know, a lot of social media, I mean, a lot of the way causes are purported on social media is that if you, you know, let's take pads and women, for instance, that if you give women pads, they're going to stay in school. And it's so limiting to look at. If you look at studies around pad use in schools, you find that there are cheaper interventions like take one medicine that give people better outcomes in the exams than the cost of pads. So if you're looking from a resource point of view, what are you going to do? Give women pads or give people take one medicine? There's impacts for both. But there's this idea that it doesn't matter, the little you do matters. And I think that that is, I'm not, I don't have, I don't think I've developed the intellectual capacity to unpack that. But there is a trade-off of people thinking that, well, every little thing you do matters and counts. And I don't think that's true. I think people waste a lot of money. And I think back to what Esther Duflo has, you know, is purporting in her book is, is saying like, 
do things on a small scale and see whether the impact is actually useful to scale up. So people would say something like, well, if you give people pads, those are people who didn't have pads. So you've done something good. And yes, that might be true on the surface, but then if you unpack the actual benefit of that, is it better to say, well, and you can spend 10 years giving people pads and say, well, yeah, we've given people pads to that success. So you compare it against where you could have done something cheaper that impacts more people and has more long-term success than giving people pads. In which case, giving people pads is not the best solution. But the idea that, I guess the idea I'm trying to drive at, and again, forgive the uh, crudeness of how would I say, this is a very crude thought, uh, it's not yet fully developed, is that we often think doing something is better than doing nothing. And I think development, it's not always true. Because when you do something and you get a sense of results of that thing, you can double down on that thing that completely is is not better than doing something else. And Esther Duflo talked about that a lot in her book where you test for in small groups for um, for the efficacy of the intervention. Mm-hmm. You don't run or run with it and say, well, at least I'm doing something. I think that gives people a sense of accomplishment. But what are you accomplishing in the grand scheme of things? It's important to, to test for and admit whether or not that thing is actually moving the needle or changing the dial. But it seems like if you critique something that somebody's doing, then you're anti-progress. Whereas my view is, are we sure what we're doing is actually going to add value or is actually going to move the needle in terms of development indices? And I think that's turning back to the point that solving poverty is hard and there's no one way. And so it's a real challenge and there's so many constraints. And so that's a difficult <laughs> difficult topic to, to address. I mean, I think you know people cannot be definitive about what it takes to solve I don't know. Should, should we just resolve to adopting Deja Vu's uh, maxim and let some get rich first? <laughs> I say yes. Here's why I'm saying that. Because you may not do flu. There's an army of um, mm-hmm. followers and um, yeah. that have sort of taken the idea that she and her husband uh, pioneered and just with it. Yeah. And now what you find is development agencies yeah. only want to fund yeah. randomized control trials yeah. and fields and um, but are we underwriting jobs? Okay, say for example your you have funds yeah, to dispense exactly. for development. If you have to choose between giving a couple of billions to say a thousand real fruits yeah. and going to 100 villages to do conditional cash yeah, transfers. Yeah. What you find now is development agencies will go for cash yeah, transfer yeah. programs than, a good example is UWIN yeah, in Nigeria. Yeah. The impact evaluation that World Bank did showed that it was quite successful, actually. Whereas 
people will be better off sometimes just getting jobs, having mm-hmm. available jobs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we were speaking earlier, I, I mean, if you told me where would I apply money, it would always be in industry, it would always be in enterprise. But there's also the truth that businesses fail and fail spectacularly and burn a lot of money. One could argue, what are the outcomes of that? The, you know, in that process of failing, firms, people are learning, you're, you're upskilling the human capital of the country, which benefits the country as a whole. So you can talk about those benefits. And if you're talking about, well, let's compare that against giving people conditional cash transfers. That money feeds them. That money in, increases their life, maybe access to drugs. So there are all these trade-offs that I find making those comparisons difficult to do. But my bias is for jobs. Um, my bias is for enterprise. My bias is for market-driven, market-led um, solutions to solve poverty than interventions. Uh, I think interventions that come before markets don't work as well, and they are often always even, they can't be sustained. You know, I would put my money where, even though there's a chance of failure of the firm, uh, I think outcomes are much better, much more desirable, at least for the, for, for the development of the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's talk about culture. Okay. okay. How you hear a lot of things like X is not our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk about corruption, you say corruption is our culture. Yeah. If you talk about hard work, you say oh, we have a culture of working hard. Yeah. How can you change culture? This is a very very tricky question, and I think I'll, I'll first go back to you know the definition of culture is vague and beyond <laughs> beyond the the scope of our discussion today. But for me, simply, I'll just create a definition of culture for this for purpose of answering this question as what people do that rewards them, that advances them individually in the society they are in at the time. So, for instance, the culture of hard work is very rewarding in America because. The society allows, you know, sort of rewards you for the amount of work you put in. So that culture of hard work is not necessarily that everybody's born hardworking or people revere being hardworking. Um, if people could get away with doing the least to get the most, they would. That's human behavior, my view. So it's that the society demands that and rewards that, and that's what people do. So I think culture here in, in Nigeria is what is the society rewarding um, and what do people what do people gain and benefit the most is what actions they will continue to perpetuate. Um, as, as dysfunctional as any society is, the order that allows people to advance the most is what they're going to, to do. And I think that's what culture, at least even the culture of a country is. It's not It's not necessarily like, oh, you know, history passed down from generations. I think that's a very simplistic view of culture. It's actually what people perpetuate that is kind of for their survival. So how do you change culture? Well, I think you change the demands, right? You change what society rewards. Uh, you change what, what the expectation is. You, you marry individual success and individual advancement to different outcomes, and you change culture. So if people kind of get anything done without being corrupt, they're going to perpetuate that. If, for instance, I can get my driver's license without having to phone anybody, all of a sudden you start finding that the culture changes. Yeah. So if you change process and order, and you change the out, you know, the way people can succeed in a society without having to deviate from the rules, or with that because more, more structures are put in place that allow things to happen in a more transparent manner, all of a sudden you say, oh, well, Nigerians are more honest people. 
I don't know. They, they may not be more honest than they were yesterday, but they certainly don't have to be dishonest to get the same outcome. Mm. So I kind of think that's my answer. I, it's not 100% foolproof, none of my answers are, but it's basically saying that it's what is the society demanding of people and rewarding. America rewards efficiency. So if you're efficient and the society is built on a level of efficiency, that means people don't have to lie to get things done. People don't have to steal to get things done. People don't have to tip to get things done. Uh, people don't have to depend so much on knowing somebody who knows somebody to get things done. And you see a more honest and trustworthy society. But that's because that's sort of what is at play there. And if those things become more at play here, I think you'll see the same results. Um, I mean, there are some examples, very few, but I think where you see more transparency and openness in how people can access things, you find that they're less likely to be corrupt. So if all of us go to the bank, like if you look at ATM queues and lining up, because most people know if I line up and I walk up to the ATM, I'm going to get my cash out. That is a very transparent, fair and clear process. Most people do it, and it's like, well, I'll wait my turn till I get to the ATM machine and I drop my money. I don't have to know anybody. I don't have to, you know, do something special. But just having that that um, process. process makes Nigerians look more orderly than they are. Because in another scenario, we would have to fight and trouble to do something like that. But because that is a very straightforward, transparent process, people behave differently. The incentives are different and the behavior is different to, to achieve the individual goal. So I think that's my one simplistic view of how you change culture. I mean, and I think that, and I, and I sort of think my view is supported by history a little bit because if you look at Nigeria today in terms of corruption, nepotism, this is things that have happened in America in the 1600s, yeah. 1700s, 1800s. The country was very barbaric. Yeah. They're not defined by those, by, you know, the type of nepotism that ruled, or even monarchies in different countries where, in England, for instance, only monarchs were rich, only who were part of a royal family had money and access to land. It's the same thing that's happening today as those economies grew, as there was more process and order, people's behaviors changed. If England were as undeveloped as Nigeria is today, people would act the same way, and that would be known as their culture. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, final question. Okay. Um, in line with the idea of this project, what's one idea you like to see spread in our society? You have 50 seconds. Oh my goodness. <laughs> For the, what, for the benefit of the country, yeah. for the benefit of society. Hey, that In Nigeria, I would have to say the idea I would like to see spread is really that around um, uh, that the understanding of what it takes to build a prosperous nation. There's one thing I hate is poverty. It's one thing I abhor is poverty, and because I think it. it strips people of their dignity and it strips people of the agency they have to be extremely productive and the antithesis of poverty is creating wealth and growing wealth and growing rich and i would love that if there's an idea how does nigeria grow rich and build wealth is something i would love to see people have a better understanding of that people really rally around because i think wealth creates a lot more desirable outcomes for um, for the for the quality of life an individual leads, and I think that that's something I'd love to see more people living better quality lives um, and not being poor. And I think 
building wealth and what it takes to create wealth as a country is what I wish more people would embrace, rally around, especially government and understand and implement. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. It's been great talking to you. You can subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Again, untrapped.substack.com. And also get notified about future episodes. See you guys next time.